Hi, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to Episode 6 of ONP Research Insights, presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetics. I'm Dr. Steve Gard, Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. This episode is sponsored by Spinal Technology. My guest today is Dr. Rachel Thompson, MD, who is with the University of California, Los Angeles, an orthopedic institute for children, Los Angeles, California. Rachel is a Chicago native who attended medical school at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and completed her residency in orthopedic surgery at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. She completed fellowships in pediatric orthopedics and neuromuscular orthopedics at Texas Scottish Rite Hospital for Children in Dallas, Texas, and Nemours A.I. DuPont Hospital for Children in Wilmington, Delaware, respectively. She joined the faculty at UCLA and the Orthopedic Institute for Children in 2017. Rachel is currently an assistant clinical professor in residence in the Department of Orthopedics at UCLA, where she serves as the director for the Center for Cerebral Palsy at UCLA OIC and is the inaugural holder of the William and Patricia Oppenheim Presidential Chair in Pediatric Orthopedics. Her clinical and research interests are in cerebral palsy and adolescent hip disease in utilizing gait gait analysis to improve surgical decision-making and in the molecular basis for the muscular pathology seen in cerebral palsy. Today, we're going to be discussing a recent article that Rachel published in JPO entitled, Is the Story Over? Progression After Bracing in Adolescent Idiopathic Scoliosis. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. I've read your article. I find it very interesting. Why don't we just jump right in? First of all, why does this topic interest you? You know, this topic to me is really interesting. There are a few times uh, that we feel as orthopedic surgeons that we can really successfully treat something non-surgically. So club feet, we got really excited about because we don't have to operate most of the time to successfully treat them. And adolescent idiopathic scoliosis is another big one that we feel like we can treat this child really reliably without surgery. And, you know, we kind of get this kid to skeletal maturity, the curve is less than 50 degrees and we're high-fiving all around. And, you know, during my fellowship at Scottish Rite, we noted that a lot of kids were coming back. And even after we had all, you know, given each other high fives, patted each other on the back, that there were these kids that progressed after successfully or quote unquote successfully completed their bracing. And so we wanted to really see who were these kids that were progressing. Is there any way that we can prevent that or at least predict who those kids would be? So, you know, our question was, are we congratulating ourselves too early? So, uh, which we're surgeons, we want to congratulate ourselves, right? And we wanted to make sure that we weren't missing a cohort of kids um, that would later have problems down the line if we didn't address it earlier. And in going into this study, what were your kind of expectations? What did you expect to find here? Well, we really didn't know. No one had really talked about this previously. There were a couple of other studies that were poorly controlled that looked at kind of post-brace progression, uh, but no one had really looked at compliance monitored bracing. So it was really hard to say, were these actually braced kids or not? We did have a sense that the progression rate perhaps would be higher 
than the natural history. We just didn't know how much higher and if that would kind of plateau, you know, very quickly after brace completion, or if we would see that after a few years after brace completion. And you're starting to get into the uh, the methodology a little bit. You mentioned the compliance monitoring, which I thought was a very good aspect of your methodology. But would you please describe the experimental protocol for your study? Yeah. So this study actually was a secondary study from a much larger study that Lori Carroll spearheaded. She began enrolling patients in in the early 2010s for this compliance monitoring study. So her first question really was, how much bracing do you need to be successful? And to be able to determine what dose of bracing you need, you really need to compliance monitor them. So all of the braces that these children were given were you know, Boston-type TLSOs with embedded Thermocron uh, sensors. And the Thermocron sensors are you know, pretty simple um, monitors. They essentially can monitor heat. So if a child's wearing their brace, obviously it will measure that the heat should be up to around 98.6. If the patient's not wearing their brace, you know, the monitor will drop below uh, what would be normal for a human body. And so that's how we were able to monitor them. So the first study that came out of that was really looking at if these children knew that they were getting monitored and they were counseled on, hey, we saw that you were only wearing your brace for six hours or eight hours, would their brace wear improve? And her, you know, Dr. Carroll and her team were able to show that and were able to show really cutoffs for what successful brace wearing is. Um, and it really is based on skeletal maturity, how big the curve is, but she was able to give more strict guidelines and so from that study, you know, she she had enrolled, you know, over 200 kids into that study. And we really just looked at those patients that completed that study. So completed bracing. Uh, so got to skeletal maturity with a curb measuring less than 40, less than or equal to 45 degrees, um, which would be considered success for us. So uh, not a surgical magnitude curb and who had one or more years follow-up after uh, brace successful or what we deem successful brace completion. And what were the inclusion exclusion criteria for the participants in this study? We enrolled children only with idiopathic scoliosis. So they had to have adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. Uh, we didn't include any other uh, diagnoses. Uh, the patients were RISR zero to two at initiation and their curves measured between 25 and 45 degrees. Now, by the time that we published this, I think we probably would have used Sanders scoring for skeletal maturity, but that wasn't available uh, when the study started. So we went with RISR score to denote skeletal immaturity. And what were the outcome measures that you were looking at? Uh, I know, of course, you're looking at uh, curve magnitude before and after our bracing and then following those participants for an extended period of time. Yeah, so our main outcome was, you know, pro progression to surgical magnitude. Uh, so after brace completion, right, you know, we looked at their magnitude at brace completion, and then we followed them out for as long as they were willing to come, but at least one year after brace completion. And we divided the group then into patients who 
got to a curve that measured 50 degrees or more. So that would be a surgical indication, at least for our group. And those who remained under 50 degree curves, which would not you know, uh, necessitate surgery. So that was our primary outcome. Some secondary outcomes, we're looking uh, at, you know, curve morphology, which we also published on, you know, whether the bracing changed the curve morphologies from like a main thoracic to a main lumbar curve, which was quite rare. We were also looking at children who progressed not necessarily to surgical magnitude, but perhaps progressed more than five degrees after their completion of bracing. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, Spinal Technology. Spinal Technology is the global leader in the design and fabrication of spinal orthoses for the stabilization, immobilization, and correction of various abnormalities of the spine. For over 30 years, medical experts around the world have depended on our team of American board-certified orthotists, highly skilled technicians, and dedicated customer service experts for better outcomes and the highest quality of patient care. We take pride in sharing our knowledge through comprehensive training and activities. Visit www.spinaltech.com forward slash resources for all of our Scoliosis Awareness Month resources. So welcome back to our broadcast. Rachel, what were the primary findings of your investigation? We found that there was a fair amount of children uh, who ended up progressing to a surgical magnitude curve after successful brace completion. So about a third of patients that we had enrolled and followed through um, for one year or more after uh, brace completion went on to surgical magnitude. Our most interesting finding, I think, is that patients who ended with a curve or were successfully completed bracing with a curve less than 40 degrees, none of those patients went on to surgical magnitude. And then it really jumps up fairly high. Patients who uh, had a curve of 40 degrees or more, nearly half of them went on to surgical magnitude. And if you finish bracing with 45 degrees or more, nearly two thirds of those went on to surgical magnitude. So I think it it really kind of that cutoff of, of 40 degrees really kind of changed the way that we approached how we counsel these patients after they complete bracing and how we should manage these patients after they complete bracing, especially in that 45 plus or, or even 41 degree plus group. And I might point out, too, that uh, uh, for the sake of the listeners who haven't read the the paper yet, that you initially enrolled 222 patients and 85 ended up finishing the study, which is commendable uh, to have that many subjects participating in this study. That really is a testament to Texas Scottish Right. They put their money where their mouth is and they, you know, really support good research and have a team that's able to do it. Uh, and it's also a testament to the, just the giant that Lori Carroll was, uh, both in the clinical realm and in the research realm. And additionally, I noticed that you all track the rate of, of curve progression in the progressors versus the non-progressors uh, after post-brace, that follow-up period. Can you say something about that as well? So we noticed that All of the children that were enrolled, whether they ended up being progressors or non-progressors, had a post-brace progression rate well higher than had been previously published in natural history studies. So our natural history studies, so unbraced, untreated AIS, 
the progression rate at skeletal maturity is about 0.4 to 0.5 degrees per year. And we found in our total cohort, uh, we had about two degrees per year or nearly two degrees per year. Now, if you looked at the patients who ended their curve, ended their bracing uh, with, you know, 40 to 49 degrees, they were a little bit over two degrees per year. And those that, that were less than that ended bracing uh, with curves that measured less than that were a little less than two degrees per year. But I think it is interesting that they were fairly similar. And I think it really just has to do with if you end bracing fairly high, you're so close to the edge. And we know uh, that your rate's going to be higher than the natural history would suggest that those, those curves are really primed to go on to reach 50 degrees or more. So in, in terms of kind of application to clinical practice, uh, what might you do differently as a result of the findings from this study? Well, at Scottish Rite, where the study was done, patients are counseled essentially from day one about A, the importance of bracing and, you know, the real success with bracing if worn appropriately, right? And so we talk about compliance. And now here at UCLA, we do the same. Uh, but really counsel our patients on the importance of compliance, the importance of really wearing the brace, and that's how you're going to be successful. But then we also start really early talking to, to these families about the importance of following up with us even after the brace is completed. And we give them the real numbers that, you know, if we can keep your curve less than 40 degrees, we think that once you're done bracing, we can kind of give each other those high fives we were talking about and see you never. But if you end your bracing with a curve more than 40 degrees, we really should be seeing those patients for at least two years after brace completion, because that's when the real risk is. And what about this recommendation for the threshold for uh, surgery? Should that be reconsidered in light of your findings? We went back and forth on that. After we saw all of this, we kind of all sat down at the two other surgeons on the paper with me, Lori Carroll and Liz Hubbard. And we thought about whether or not we should really strongly recommend should 45 degrees be our cutoff. And we think that it wouldn't be unreasonable if in a patient who had been previously braced, if you wanted to operate on them at 45 degrees, because we know that two thirds of those will go on to 50 degrees um, and they might keep progressing. We don't know what happens after that 2.5 year mark because we weren't able to follow them out. But our thought is they'll probably continue to progress. So it wouldn't be unreasonable. That being said, I think all of us have really come to the conclusion that you know we need to counsel our patients that if they have a 45 degree curve at completion of bracing or even higher, they have a high chance of going on to 50 degrees and we can give those patients the option of we could operate now, we could watch you for a couple of years and make that decision. And we don't think that the surgery itself will be too different if we do it at 45 degrees at completion of bracing or in a year or two years thereafter, if they do go on to progress, because one third of them will be just fine. Right. I mean, in essence, it. Uh, that's what was intriguing about the data is uh, in that particular group, the majority did go on to progress to uh, surgical uh, consideration there. 
Now, like any study, there are, of course, limitations to kind of point out and discuss. So uh, would you uh, kind of hit on some of the limitations of your approach here? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I mentioned it earlier, but the time that we were collecting all the data, we didn't have Sanders scores, which is the kind of more modern way to determine skeletal maturity. So we really relied on RISR scores, which is just a lot less accurate, a lot less specific for determining peak height growth velocity. So that really probably would change who was braced, who was not braced, and really narrow um, who was appropriate for bracing from the get-go. The other thing that I think we're limited by is even though we had 85 patients who we were able to follow up at one year um, after brace completion, we had a lot of uh, patients who did drop out and we couldn't follow. So, you know, we do have a concern that perhaps that we were only following the patients that perhaps had worse progression and that's why they were willing to come back. That being said, we did, you know, do some analysis looking at those patients that failed to return versus those that continued to come back and make sure that they were pretty similar groups. They were very similar groups. The only difference really was the age at initiation of of bracing was a little bit lower in those that uh, were not lost to follow-up compared to those that were lost to follow-up. And then the age at brace completion was also a little bit lower in the group that we were able to follow. But curve magnitude, curve morphology, RISR score, all of those were were similar and comparable. So we don't think that that biased our results too, too terribly, but it certainly could have. So, you know, I think if we had a larger group, we probably could have more patients. The other thing that would be really interesting that we were limited by is if we could follow these patients out, not just two years, but five years, because we did see that the progression rate in the first year was the highest and it dropped down a bit. And that's in the group that we were able to follow for over two years, the progression rate does drop in the second year. So do we see that gradual drop over the next three to five years or when does it really settle out? And I think that would help us, you know, even further predict who's at risk for progression, who's at risk for needing surgery later on. So you're kind of getting into uh, some recommendations here for future work, because there probably are some listeners who could be considering jumping into a study like this themselves. What other recommendations would you have for future studies in this area? Well, I sure hope we have uh, more studies looking at this. You know, like I said, you know, I think our biggest goal when we were looking at this is to figure out who really is going to benefit from bracing, right? The brace study showed, you know, the study out of St. Louis showed us that bracing really is very successful. It improves our success rate, our improves our non-surgical, you know, success rate by a fair amount, but we still don't know which patients are going to go on to on to surgery no matter what, which patients are going to be successful no matter what. And in there, there's one group probably that is, you know, their trajectory has changed specifically because of bracing. And so what would be great is in future studies to look at, you know, just more kind of factors. So using that Sanders score to see if that does play a role and following these children out 
way long-term. There's some interesting uh, work being done in Japan, uh, looking again at the genetic kind of risk factors for scoliosis, for progression. Um, So including some of that work would be fairly interesting to really combine a study about bracing with more of the molecular basis and the genetic basis for progression um, to see are there real predictors and can we tailor our bracing a little bit better? Okay, as we're uh, kind of wrapping things up here, I, I always like to ask our guests, did you receive any funding to conduct this study? I did not. Uh, I was very lucky that I was uh, working at Texas Scottish Rite, where we have a lot of internal support for uh, statisticians and research coordinators. So we didn't have to use any external funding. That works out very well whenever you have access to those kind of resources. So I'm pleased to hear. For sure. So we've come to the end of our podcast. So I'd like to thank Dr. Thompson for sharing her insights and discussing her research with us here today. And I'd like to remind everyone that if you would like additional information on Dr. Thompson's project, you can access the full article about this study in the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. So thanks again for joining us for this episode of ONP Research Insights presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetics. We'd like to extend a special thank you to our episode sponsor, Spinal Technology. For more information, visit their website at spinaltech.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please plan to join us again next month for the Academy's ONP Research Insights podcast, when we'll be hosting another author and discussing their recent JPO article.